You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I am your ho- co-host, Katie Putz, recording from Washington, D.C. as well. Hey, Katie. Good to be back with you as always. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we have a promise to keep to our listeners. As we said at the end of the last episode, uh, we would be turning our attentions to uh, the very interesting uh, and I would say remarkably significant 20th Party Congress that has just concluded in Beijing uh, to take a look at changes at the highest levels of the Chinese Communist Party's leadership structure, plans for the next five-year period, and more broadly speaking, uh, Xi Jinping's remarkable consolidation of a unprecedented third term, unprecedented, of course, in the in the post-Mao era. Um, and who better to join us uh, to talk about these things than Shannon Tiazzi, the Diplomats Editor-in-Chief. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure to join you guys. Of course. And uh, for listeners who maybe have started listening to the podcast since the last time we had Shan on, uh, Shannon is a specialist on China, uh, and I have learned more from Shannon than many people on the internal goings on in China, all aspects of Chinese foreign policy and internal politics. So Shannon, it's really great to have you on to talk about the 20th Party Congress. Katie, why don't I pass it over to you to uh, get us started today? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, I think the obvious place to start is, you know, what are some of the major takeaways after the party Congress has concluded? I know you've done a lot of thinking about what we should watch for before the Congress. And then uh, I edited an article by you today on what we uh, should take away from it. So give us the audio rundown of, of that. Sure. So um, if anyone followed my pre-Congress writings, there's really two pieces that I, and I think a lot of China analysts were looking at. One uh, is the work report, which is a very lengthy document and then a slightly abridged but still very lengthy speech given by Xi Jinping on behalf of the outgoing Central Committee. And that's the Communist Party sees as its achievements over the past five years and sets the tone for the next five years. And the big takeaway there was um, the CCP is going to stay the course, which is not a surprise given you know Xi Jinping's dominance at the top level. Everyone expected him to get a third term, which, as Ankit already noted, he in fact did. But I think particularly on zero COVID, it was, you know, maybe not surprising, but telling that there was no acknowledgement at all that there may have been some unintended consequences that were negative from this policy or really from any of Xi Jinping's top line policies. Just full speed ahead on all fronts on everything China has been doing, um, whether that's the fighting spirit of uh, China's foreign policy, what we might call wolf warrior diplomacy or zero COVID. And then the other big thing that, of course, everyone around the world was watching was the uh, personnel changes at the top level of CCP governance, which we're talking about the Politburo, which is the it has been 25. It's currently 24 uh, members. And then um, above that, the Politburo Standing Committee, which is of those 24, the top seven men, and they are all men and have always been all men. (laughs) So Xi Jinping tops that out, um, but he ran the board. All seven of the members of the Politburo Standing Committee are close Xi allies. Uh, There are a couple of kind of head scratchers, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, You know, it's notable both for the people who were left off as well as the people that were put on. So there's a lot to talk about in terms of the internal politicking. So on that on that note, um, you know, I think the head scratcher or perhaps the 
the one that wasn't too widely expected, but the Wall Street Journal actually managed to sort of predict that this person would be joining the standing committee is, is Li Qiang. As you said, the loyalty that various leaders showed to Xi Jinping was very much rewarded at the 20th Party Congress. So he's, of course, the, the, the party chief in Shanghai, implemented the brutal COVID lockdown there, a loyal, uh, a loyal implementer of the zero COVID strategy for Xi. And lo and behold, he's on the standing committee. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Li Chang is really a surprise, not only because he's on the standing committee, it's not that unusual for the party secretary of Shanghai to make it on. Um, what's surprising is that he was trotted out in the number two position, which suggests that he is going to be replacing Li Keqiang, uh, you know, not confusing at all to have Li Chang <laughs> taking over for Li Keqiang. But Li Chang, party secretary of Shanghai, is going to be the new premier. Um, and now this won't be made official along with all the state appointments until the two sessions, the National People Congress um, and the CPPCC meetings, which will be in March next year. But generally, the number two guy walking out of that first Politburo meeting is the premier and we have not had someone be the premier who was not previously served um, as a vice premier in the post mao era so not only did Li chang make it onto the politburo standing committee but he's basically being parachuted in over all of the current vice premiers to take on the top role of economic policy making for china and um that really says a lot because he's not popular. Uh, he's not seen as particularly successful after this fairly disastrous COVID lockdown. So it really seems like she was sending a message that I can get whoever I want. And above all else, loyalty to me is what's going to get you promoted. And is that kind of one of the big themes of this party Congress generally? I mean, you know, people people have made the point in the lead up to the Congress that she is broadly looking to dismantle many of the post-Dung era norms that existed within the party. Collective leadership, of course, was done away with at the, uh, at the 19th Party Congress. And now we're seeing, you know, she sort of streamroll everything from age limits uh, and, you know, the retirement ages for for many senior officials, rewarding loyalty with without people being in the traditional predecessor positions before they should be elevated. Is that is that fair to say, Shannon, that we're kind of just seeing the dismantling of really 30 plus years of Communist Party norms? Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway for a lot of us China watchers. Um, it's a lot of these norms were put in place to prevent the sort of cutthroat infighting that was marking the end of the Mao Zedong period, which of course culminated in the intense violence of the Cultural Revolution. So what Deng Xiaoping was trying to prevent was a scenario where you have this elderly leader who no one can get rid of, but beneath him there's just an absolute bloodbath of political infighting and factionalization. And Xi Jinping has been slowly chipping away at the sort of reforms that Deng Xiaoping made to try to prevent this scenario from happening. Obviously, he set the scene way back in 2017 to take on a third term, um, 
which, you know, it's a little strange to call it unprecedented because the precedent itself is so very recent, uh, only going back to Jiang Zemin, but it's still very notable that we had had two rounds of this very predictable orderly power transition, and now that's been thrown out the window. Uh, another point was the age limits, as you mentioned. The party, even post-Mao, was struggling to deal with what do we do with all of these powerful but increasingly elderly leaders who just have a tendency to hang on to their positions. And the solution they came up with was called the seven up, eight down rule. Um, if you are 68 or older, you're retiring. If you're 67 or younger, you're not. And that kind of made an objective standard so that you didn't have this constant fighting, not only to try and gain a seat, but to keep your seat if you had an existing one. And uh, she broke that at this party congress. Li Keqiang, the outgoing premier, and Wang Yang, um, who was a vice premier, were both seen as not part of Xi's faction. There's a lot of debate over whether the Hu Jintao Communist Youth League faction even exists anymore or is a meaningful analytical tool. So I won't label them as being part of a specific faction. They're just not with Xi. And they're both 67. So under the formal rule, well, it's not, it's an unwritten rule, but the former unwritten rule, they would have stayed on. Um, no one really expected Li Keqiang to stay on because he had already announced he's not going to stay on as premier. But Wang Yang was, people weren't quite sure what was going to happen to him. Now we know he's gone. Uh, meanwhile, Wang Huning, who is also 67, who is on the Politburo Standing Committee and is a close Xi ally, was permitted to stay on. And so there's a clear divergence in how these three 67-year-old men are treated in terms of their political careers based on how close they are personally to Xi Jinping. Um, and obviously, Xi himself stayed on, even though he's 69, could have been expected to retire. And there are a couple of other um, people above the 68 age limit who made it onto the Politburo. Um, and they are also, you know, seen as in Xi Jinping's camp. So the message is pretty clear. We're back to an era where your political loyalties determine not only whether you're promoted, but whether or not you get fired effectively, which is going to make Chinese politics even messier. Hey, sounds like American politics under the last administration <laughs> in, a, uh, in a real way, right? So <laughs> perhaps um, not so unprecedented. Katie, go ahead. So, so Shannon, I think this is probably a good time to address the Hu Jintao question. Um, I, I, as as uh, I know, you were following the the Party Congress very closely. I was not following it as clo closely, so I only have a a brief overview. But maybe explain to our listeners sort of what happened with this Hu, Hu Jintao and why everybody's talking about that. And then maybe I know you didn't want to get too deep into the the factionalization question, but maybe a little bit. On, on, you know, going forward, um, what we should maybe look for when it comes to factions, because, you know, it seems uh, she allies and, and she partners are the ones who, who are going to have a lot of power at this time, but everybody, nobody lives forever. So I'm sure people are already uh, thinking about um, what that future might look like. Yeah, so Hu Jintao um, was Xi Jinping's predecessor as General Secretary of the CCP and the President of China. And he was seated front and center next to Xi Jinping at the 20th Party Congress. Now, on the closing day, after all of the reporters and journalists with their cameras are let in, Hu Jintao is suddenly maneuvered up out of his chair by an aide who literally grabs him by the arm and pulls him up 
um, who looks very confused and discombobulated in the video footage. Uh, he does not seem like he wants to leave. Arguably, he doesn't even really know what's going on enough to understand where he is. Um, this is the big debate. But he he's fled forcibly out of the hall. Now, Xinhua on Twitter posted that he was having health problems, um, that his aides had led him off to rest in another room, and that he's now doing just fine. Thanks for all your concern. But a lot of China watchers viewed this as a very ominous political message. There are some rumors that this is a political purge, um, that maybe Hu Jintao himself is going to be targeted in the continuing anti-corruption probe. Um, I think Bill Bishop had a really good point, which is that Hu Jintao still appeared prominently in the CCTV broadcast of the closing of the party congress, which is not something that the party would do if they wanted to completely write him out of this event. Uh, but certainly, it's a public humiliation, right? Even if we accept at face value the Xinhua explanation that he was sick and he arguably does look unwell and confused. There have been some rumors he might be suffering from dementia. Um, why would you wait until all of the world's journalists with all of their cameras are in the room to record this happening? And certainly the the body language involved, there doesn't seem to be any sympathy being offered to him. Um, whether that's deliberate or just a sign of the fact that he's not on the same side as Xi Jinping and offering sympathy to him could be read the wrong way by Xi. Um, I think it's really telling of the lack of political clout that Hu Jintao has. And he was the leader of what was previously known as the Communist Youth League faction that included Wang Yang, um, Hu Jintao, and also Hu Chunhua, who was seen as a contender for the Politburo Standing Committee, but in the end, not only didn't make the PSC, but was kicked out of the Politburo. He's not even 60 yet. And he lost his seat because he was affiliated with the wrong faction. Um, so just symbolically, Hu Jintao being forcibly escorted out of the room really spoke to a lot of China watchers as the fall of political opposition to Xi Jinping. So turning a bit towards foreign policy and, and I guess geopolitical ramifications, um, everything that you've said so far, Shannon, I think suggests that everything that Xi Jinping wants is going to be carried out in China over the, over the next five years. I mean, there might be struggles going on behind the scenes that none of us can really fully perceive, but that I think is one of the big pictures from this party Congress, that she has consolidated power in a way that he really hadn't over his last two five-year terms. And now, um, Basically, we should expect to see a lot more of what Xi Jinping wants, even uh, internationally and within China as well. Uh, and, you know, as I think we've seen with other authoritarian leaders who perhaps aren't surrounded by people that will second guess their decisions, this is likely to lead perhaps in a direction where China might behave even more assertively in its region. Um, I know that the Party Congress, of course, is primarily an internally oriented event, but if you had to offer our listeners your educated predictions on what this might mean for how China maneuvers uh, towards Taiwan, uh, towards uh, American partners uh, in Asia, uh, in, in the context of border disputes with countries like India. What would be your broader uh, assessment here uh, for what we should be expecting? 
Yeah, one takeaway that I had um, in terms of the foreign policy field was that China sees a far more hostile global environment facing it this time. Um, since the early 2000s, there has been this consensus within the CCP that China is in a period of strategic opportunity for development, which essentially they are saying the conditions are good for China's continued development. This year, that phrase did not appear. Instead, Xi Jinping mentioned that China is in a period where strategic opportunities and risks and challenges all coexist. Um, and there was a lot of talk about foreign hostile forces, foreign interference, about China needing to keep its fighting spirit going strong uh, on foreign affairs and particularly with regards to Taiwan. So I think the Chinese Communist Party sees itself as besieged on a lot of fronts in in the global order right now, uh, which should not really come as a surprise to anyone who's been following particularly the China-U.S. competition over the last few years. Uh, but it's still noteworthy that this is making it into the top line party mm -hmm. doctrine document. Um, I, I actually, for a quick preview, I'm going to address this more in my magazine piece uh, coming out at the end of October. But on Taiwan, there was some toughening of language, uh, nothing approximating a timeline, uh, which people have been speculating, you know, that Xi Jinping has an internal timeline for when he wants to you know, occupy Taiwan, either peacefully or by force. There's nothing indicating that, but there's a sense of inevitability and of positive commitment that wasn't there before. So in the past work report, you had things like the Chinese Communist Party will not allow Taiwan independence, which is essentially we're not going to let something happen. And this time, there's a statement that national reunification can be and will be achieved, which is a positive promise that we are going to do something rather than prevent something else from happening. So certainly for um, people following the Taiwan question, there's a lot to be concerned about. Um, but again, I don't think it's anything surprising or new for people who've been following the dynamics of cross-strait relations over the past few years. This is all um, stay the course Congress, as we said before, we're going to see these trends um, of Xi Jinping diplomacy, you know, whether that's Wolf Warrior diplomacy um, being more assertive and more hardline in reacting to developments in China's region. These are all going to intensify and continue down the line. Mm -hmm. And economic statecraft is sort of, you know, the big loser here in many ways. Xi Jinping is not particularly concerned with managerial technocracy and, and building up China's economy. We're seeing fewer economic statistics published than ever before uh, out of China. What do you what do you expect there in terms of how under the next five years we're likely to see China maneuver economically, uh, internally and externally uh, in the region? So the work report really highlighted that China is not going to be obsessed with its growth numbers anymore. Um, it prioritized national security and stability over economic growth. Uh, also, common prosperity made a, a, another appearance. This is Xi Jinping's statement that he cares more about the livelihood of individual Chinese citizens than about China's GDP as a whole. And, and again, there's nothing new here. These are all things we've heard before, but seeing them written into this definitive um, 
party assessment of its past and future work is is still significant. So I think it's clear that Xi Jinping is willing to sacrifice sacrifice economic growth when he sees a political imperative for doing that. And the big example, of course, is the zero COVID policy. And as you mentioned, Li Chang, as the party secretary of Shanghai, kind of became the poster boy of implementing Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy, even at enormous economic and arguably social costs. The people in Shanghai were not at all happy uh, to be barricaded into their homes. You hear numerous stories of people struggling to you know, buy basic necessities when you're not allowed to leave your house. And in that, the person in charge of that has been essentially rewarded, not only with a promotion, but a mega promotion into the number two spot in China's regime. Uh, that being said, Li Keqiang and Li Xi in particular, uh, they were in charge of some of China's most economically prosperous reasons. Uh, Li Xi was the party secretary of Guangdong province. So we do have some economic expertise, particularly on you know, the tech innovation front, which is another point of emphasis for Xi Jinping. That is represented on the Politburo Standing Committee. But of course, you have to put that in line with the fact that Xi Jinping has made it clear national security and political stability is his top line goal. And he's going to be willing to sacrifice economic goals to reach his top line goal. And there's also the open question of how much anyone is going to be willing to suggest alternative economic policies for China in this environment where loyalty to Xi Jinping is what gets you promoted and what keeps you politically safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no one's going to tell the leader that uh, his plans don't perhaps makes sense. Uh, and yeah. so that's going to lead to uh, potentially some suboptimal outcomes. Um, so we're we're sort of nearing the end of our time. Uh, but Katie, did you have any uh, final final questions you wanted to post to Shannon while we have her? Yeah, I, I did have one one final question. Um, this sort of bounces off this final discussion. But, you know, what was the public reaction to the work report and to the Congress in so much as we can gauge it, um, given sort of lack of access, I think, because um, as everybody should probably know by now, before the Congress, there was a very small uh, poster sort of protest over over a highway in Beijing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious what your view on the potential for there being sort of public dissatisfaction with, in particular, zero COVID continuing in the way that you said, but also some of these other sort of breaking of what had started to be established as norms, um, and then those kind of going by the wayside. Yeah, I think it's impossible to know what the average Chinese person thinks of the party Congress simply because they're not allowed to discuss it in any public forum that's broadly accessible to mm -hmm. outside researchers. Um, the protest in Beijing was significant, not just because it happened, but because it sparked a wave of kind of mirror protests that involve people sending the same slogans to each other via airdrop. Um, there's been several reports on that uh, from Vice and the New York Times really detailing the anonymous people who are behind these one-person protests. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also been 
on foreign campuses in the United States, in the UK, in Australia, there's been a wave of posters posted on bulletin boards reusing the same slogans um, within China, people writing them on graffiti inside bathroom stalls, which is one of the few places in China where you're not going to be on a security <laughs> camera. Um, so there, it's clear that there is dissent. What we can't know is how, how widespread it is. Um, and I think certainly among the intellectual middle classes uh, in China's urban cities, Beijing, Shanghai, there is some discontent um, with zero COVID for sure. A lot of people were really hoping that the 20th Party Congress would be the beginning of the end of zero COVID. Um, if that is clearly not the case. So there's going to be some lingering discontent to have to deal with there. If it doesn't end now, then when does it end? Uh, people don't want to have to be getting COVID tested every two days for the rest of their life. <laughs> mm. So I think the Chinese Communist Party is going to need to figure out how to deal with that uh, at some point in the future. But there is also some discontent and concern about Xi Jinping essentially anointing himself leader for life. Uh, there was a big wave of concern uh, in 2018 when the Chinese constitution was amended to allow the president to serve for more than two terms. That was a pretty clear sign that Xi Jinping wanted to stay on. And now there's another wave. Um, I've seen people saying they feel sick, um, they feel afraid about another cultural revolution, which was one of the slogans used by the protester. We don't want cultural revolution, we want reform and opening. But again, it's impossible to know how widespread these sentiments are because there's a lot of selection bias and the people who are talking to foreign media or foreign academics, they tend to be upper class, they tend to be better educated. And so, you know, is the average Chinese person who's just trying to make a living in a village, do they care about this? at all? Or are they just happy that Xi Jinping has made China stronger and more respected on the world stage? Because that's also a very popular sentiment expressed by Chinese people. We really can't know. Um, and we won't know unless there's some currently unimaginable <laughs> groundswell of dissent uh, popping up. But I think at this point, it's you can see, you can find evidence for whatever conclusion you want. If you want to conclude that the Chinese public is fully behind Xi Jinping. There's evidence that points to that. If you want to say there's this secret reservoir of discontent just waiting to oust the guy, then you can find evidence for that too. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And and I see a lot of, you know, I guess a lot of the uh, criminalology that sort of happens, you know, is also very interested in the factional politics of whether, you know, Xi is doing all of this loyalty consolidation precisely because he fears various shadows lurking in the background in the halls of Chongnanhai, which, of course, none of us can really assess with any uh, clarity anyways. I guess what I'm really curious about, though, is, you know, you have sort of 30 years of tremendous growth for the average Chinese person that they've lived under. And, and now if that reverses itself, you know, the discontent from zero COVID, the, the lack of interest in in sort of prioritizing growth as as the as the first primary policy goal of the party, the the increasing ideological nature of, of political life in China. I mean, will all of this lead to a place where the the expectations of sort of the I mean, primarily like also like younger folks in China that have grown up in a world where, you know, that has been the baseline expectation. I mean, what effects that will have politically? Uh, and I don't think any of us know, Shannon. I think I think you put that quite well, but I'm just I'm just curious to see, you know, how these forces will actually um actually manifest uh, over uh, over the next several years. Well, yeah, that's one big question is 
what this is going to do to China's youth because youth unemployment is a huge issue right now with the economy slowing and the younger people tend to have less to lose, frankly. Um, students historically have led protest movements in China and around the world. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your tremendous insights about the 20th Party Congress. I, I certainly learned a lot, and uh, it's always it's always great to have you on the show to talk about China. Yeah, thanks for having me on, on Kate and Katie. Absolutely. Uh, and Katie, thanks, too, for, uh, for joining me, as always. It's always a good time. Cool. And uh, for our listeners, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. Uh, And if you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do that so you can um, basically be aware when we do release new content. And as always, uh, do reach out with suggestions for Katie and me for things you'd like to see covered on the show. Uh, And Katie, I was thinking we are nearing the end of the month. So did you want to offer our listeners a preview of the upcoming magazine? Uh, Absolutely. So I I think... uh... I'm very excited for the November issue uh, in the covers. We have a very cool cover story that uh, Shannon and I put together um, with four uh, academic activists, journalists, a uh, variety of women uh, looking at women's rights in Asia from a variety of perspectives. Um, I think in the, the issue, we highlight Papua New Guinea, China, India, and uh, Kazakhstan. And so it gives a, a very good overview of, um, you know, are women's lots improving in Asia and in what ways and which women? And it's, I think it starts a really good, important conversation. Um, honestly, one that ties into something that Shannon wrote earlier today uh, regarding the party Congress and sort of the lack of women in, in Chinese politics, but um, it's a great start to the issue. Uh, we also look at uh, Pakistan uh, as it moves towards uh, a new uh, chief uh, staff of the army, um, which is a very important political and military position in, in the country uh, and some other great stuff. So uh, please subscribe to the magazine and uh, you'll get all of that. Excellent. Well, thanks, everyone. We'll uh, we'll be back soon with more on the Asia Geopolitics podcast. Thanks for listening.